The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, it's another deep dive day. Last time I did one of these, a lot of you said you really liked the format, so here you go. Today, we are talking about the dress. Remember the photo of that blue and black dress, or I'm sorry, white and gold dress? It turns out at least one neuroscientist conducted an official study of people's perceptions about it, and his findings could have larger ramifications on our seemingly increasing inability to communicate and understand each other when it comes to fundamental social issues. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It's 2015. The first feature-length Star Wars film in a decade is about to come out. Trevor Noah has just taken over The Daily Show, while Larry Wilmore begins an ill-fated stint in Stephen Colbert's old time slot, while Colbert moves over to The Late Show on CBS. Adele and Drake are making phone calls cool again with Hello and Hotline Bling. Barack Obama is still in office, and the U.S. women's soccer team wins the World Cup for the third time. And in early February, most of the world becomes a obsessed with a grainy photo of a blue dress. Or was it white and gold? It's been seven years since the internet was thrust into chaos debating the real color of the dress depicted in the photo, and one neuroscientist, Pascal Wallish, has some takeaways. Wallish, whose research is concentrated on consciousness and perception, got funding from NYU while the dress was still going viral in order to properly study the phenomenon in his lab. And some of his findings are summarized in David McGraney's new book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion, an adapted excerpt of which was published in Wired last week. So as a reminder of just how much the dress dominated public attention for a while there, Wired notes that at its peak, the hashtag the dress was appearing in 11,000 tweets per minute, and Twitter itself repeatedly crashed for people trying to go online to understand how there could possibly be people who saw such a different image from them. Surely someone was trolling them, right? Right? Because if not, then what other objects in the world are we perceiving as vastly different from others around us? If two people can look at the same image and see completely different colors, what even are colors? What even is reality? Given this whole conundrum occurred just shortly before the advent of alternative facts and fake news heralded the resurgence of mass conspiratorial thinking and cults like QAnon, it almost, in retrospect, feels like it set the stage for some of that. And maybe it did. After all, as McRaney writes, quote, For many, the dress was an introduction to something neuroscience has understood for a long while. The fact that reality itself, as we experience it, 
isn't a perfect one-to-one account of the world around us. The world, as you experience it, is a simulation running inside your skull, a waking dream. We each live in a virtual landscape of perpetual imagination and self-generated illusion, a hallucination informed over our lifetimes by our senses and thoughts about them, updated continuously as we bring in new experiences via those senses and think new thoughts about what we have sensed. If you didn't know this, for many, the dress demanded you either take to your keyboard to shout into the abyss, or take a seat and ponder your place in the grand scheme of things. End quote. The viral dress itself, colors aside, had a bit of this effect on Wallish, the neuroscientist. Having spent years studying visual processing and photoreceptors in the retinas, even he was stunned by the dress. McRaney describes him as being, quote, like a biologist learning that doctors had just discovered a new organ in the body. End quote. So some quick eye and color science here. The colors that we see are different wavelengths of electromagnetic energy that come from a source of light. And when the light collides with an object, the object absorbs some of the wavelengths and others bounce off. Quoting McRaney, Whatever is left behind goes through a hole in our heads called the pupil and strikes the retinas at the back of the eyes, where it all gets translated into the electrochemical buzz of neurons that the brain then uses to construct the subjective experience of seeing colors. Because most natural light is red, green, and blue combined, a lemon absorbs the blue wavelengths, leaving behind the red and green to hit our retinas, which the brain then combines into the subjective experience of seeing a yellow lemon. The color, though, exists only in the mind. In consciousness, yellow is a figment of the imagination. The reason we tend to agree that lemons are yellow, and lemons, is because all our brains pretty much create the same figment of the imagination when light hits lemons and then bounces into our heads. End quote. But, as the dress and many other visual illusions demonstrate, we don't always agree on what we see. Think about the Reuben vase, that image that sometimes looks like a vase and sometimes looks like two silhouetted faces looking at each other. When we encounter something we can't immediately interpret, our brains, without us actively being aware of it, disambiguates the image. We rely on previous experiences, things we've seen before, things we know, to disambiguate the unfamiliar image or object. Illusions like the Rubin vase are called bistable visual illusions. There are two possible interpretations, and while you can only see one at a time, you can usually see both if you think about it. For the dress, it was bistable, but each individual person could only ever see one of the two possible color combinations. During his study, Wallish hypothesized that some form of disambiguation was happening. After all, this image was a little bit weird. It was taken on an old phone by Cecilia Bleasdale inside of a shop to text her daughter and show her what dress she planned to wear to her daughter's wedding the following week. The family disagreed about what color the dress was based on the photo, so the daughter posted it on Facebook to see what others thought. And then after the wedding, when people saw the dress in person and confirmed it was blue and black, the photo continued to confound people, so friend and wedding band member Caitlin McNeil posted the photo on Tumblr to get more opinions, and it all snowballed from there. But the important part is that the photo itself was what was unique, not the dress. There were some weird quirks of the photo, the poor quality from an old phone, the overexposure of part of the background, and underexposure of part of the dress. 
Wallish thinks that people disambiguated the confusing photo in different ways. Some people's brains overcorrected for the poor lighting conditions, for example. And after two years of research involving 10,000 participants, one strong pattern emerged. People who spent more time exposed to warm artificial lighting, so for example folks who worked at night or indoors, were more likely to say the dress was blue and black, while people who spent more time in natural lighting saw white and gold. But as you might remember from your first and second and fourteenth time seeing the dress, none of them ever questioned what they saw. They weren't aware of this disambiguating that their brains were doing, it just happened, and what they saw is what they saw. And it seemed unbelievable that someone else could see it the other way. As McRaney described it, quote, The result was a lie told to them by their brains that felt obviously true. End quote. Wallace's lab called this the substantial uncertainty with ramified or forked priors or assumptions you will get disagreement, aka surf pad. And quoting further from McRaney, In other words, when the truth is uncertain, our brains resolve that uncertainty without our knowledge by creating the most likely reality they can imagine based on our prior experiences. People whose brains remove that uncertainty in similar ways will find themselves in agreement, like those who saw the dress as black and blue. Others whose brains resolve that uncertainty in a different way will also find themselves in agreement, like those who saw the dress as white and gold. The essence of SurfPad is that both groups feel certain, and among the like-minded, it seems that those who disagree, no matter their numbers, must be mistaken. In each group, people then begin searching for reasons why those in the other group can't see the truth, without entertaining the possibility that they aren't seeing the truth themselves. End quote. And this is an important takeaway beyond color. Think about any big cultural debate right now. Wearing masks and getting vaccinated, teaching kids about racial justice, trans people and the challenging of gender beyond norms that have been taught in the dominant culture for generations. For topics that are new to some people and that are being introduced without a lot of context or time to process and fully understand, those people will fill in the gaps from the knowledge base they do have. In his latest release, The 90s, a book, Chuck Klosterman elaborates on this idea mostly through the example of the mainstreaming of African-American vernacular English among white audiences through hip-hop in the early 90s. Klosterman wrote, quote, This phenomenon of white-bred audiences suddenly confronting ideologies that minority groups had long considered inescapable parts of life accelerated during the first half of the 90s. Realities once ignored were rapidly transformed into narrative tropes, and this mass recognition of inequality would generate a parallel period of frustration and confusion. The frustration came from the marginalized, aghast that problems intrinsic to their lived experience were being turned into entertainment within the same moment they were acknowledged to exist. The confusion came from white consumers, many of whom did not understand the insular rules governing the cultural worldscapes they were absorbing for the first time. The friction was contextual. When white people engaged with a new language through a hip-hop album, it was seen as enlightening and mind-expanding. But the moment that engagement encroached upon regular day-to-day -day life, the response turned negative. End quote. 
Klosterman goes on to detail the freakout from white folks over an Oakland school district's acknowledgement of African-American vernacular English as the primary language for the majority of their black students. This was interpreted by some white people as AAVE replacing traditional English, or only AAVE being taught in schools now, except at the time, it was usually referred to as Ebonics, a term coined in the 1970s that was meant to recognize the merits, legitimacy, and unique grammatical structure of the language, but through the white freakout, the term became lampooned and occasionally offensive. As Klosterman astutely diagnoses, quote, language and concepts were advancing at different speeds, end quote. We can see that in so much right now. Trans topics are a big one. Trans people in various forms and fashions have existed throughout time and across cultures, even if the descriptive words have changed. But the words currently being used in English-speaking communities have been around within trans communities for decades or longer. So the words and concepts are nothing new to people within the community. But some of the concepts, when you haven't experienced them yourself or taken the time to listen to a trans person or confront what you've always been taught about the binaries of gender and sexes by your culture and beginner-level science courses, it can be confusing. These new-to-you terms being thrown around without you being given the time to learn the concepts, it all may be even impossible or ludicrous-sounding. And if you're someone who prefers to fall back on what you already know about the world instead of taking the time to learn more, you might end up with some pretty roundabout explanations for why trans people exist or why they're, in your mind, suddenly everywhere and demanding so much of larger society. McGraney says a similar thing happened with the COVID-19 vaccines. Not having backgrounds in immunology or having lived through a pandemic that affected them before, many people relied on their existing experience with doctors, scientific institutions, and the government. And for a lot of people, that translated into skepticism. Skepticism that, for many, was bolstered by other skeptics hawking of conspiracy theories. As he concludes, not so hopefully, quote, When we encounter novel information that seems ambiguous, we unknowingly disambiguate it based on what we've experienced in the past. But starting at the level of perception, different life experiences can lead to very different disambiguations, and thus very different subjective realities. When that happens, in the presence of substantial uncertainty, we may vehemently disagree over reality itself. But since no one on either side is aware of the brain processes leading up to that disagreement, it makes people who see things differently seem, in a word, wrong. End quote. To me, the dress will always be blue and black. I have never been able to see it as white and gold. But you know what? I trust that some people see it that way. I don't have to see it exactly the same way they do to respect their perception. So long as their perception of the dress being white and gold isn't, you know, actively threatening mine or others' safety and autonomy. Well, one little chaser after all that because I saw this last week and haven't been able to fit it in yet. French's, the condiment brand, last week released limited edition ketchup popsicles. Only available at brief pop-ups last week in Canada, the so-called Frenchsicle was a collaboration with the Canadian company Happy Pops and were created with 100% Canadian tomatoes to create a, quote, savory tomato flavor that is perfectly balanced with a hint of salty sweetness, end quote. 
Ketchup is pretty huge in Canada. French's says 79% of Canadians like or love the tangy condiment. So if a ketchup popsicle were to work anywhere, it's probably Canada. And according to a few folks profiled by Narcity, opinions varied. One person described it positively as like a Bloody Mary. The popsicles apparently also have some cayenne and salt added to them. While another said it was like sucking on a ketchup bottle. And for any of you mustard fans feeling left out, French's actually did a mustard-flavored ice cream in partnership with Cool House back in 2019. Maybe they'll do future drops in more locations of the mustard ice cream and ketchup popsicles, because I gotta say, I'm intrigued, and I do not trust my own abilities to replicate them at home in any passable form. But that's gonna be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.